I had everything, Alex. I had everything. Of course I did. I went through the menu. I ordered exactly what I wanted. I ordered more of the things I had enjoyed eating. I ordered the larger plates. I ordered the rabbit pot pie. I ordered the, the things that I didn't feel comfortable eating with her sitting there. Uh, I ordered two more martinis. I ordered wine. I sat and I listened to the jazz till past midnight. I had a fantastic night. But the fantastic part just didn't start until I felt like I was free to be myself. Welcome to Landline Podcast. I'm a professional voiceover artist that Alex could never have actually gotten unless I was his friend from 10 years ago. You're lucky because on today's episode, it's Saul versus Alex, Alex versus Saul. Two white men talking about themselves. Featuring a career elitist trying to find a purpose for his life. A Jewish male shopaholic, as if that's news. You're listening to Landline. One, two. This is Saul speaking. Saul, it's Alex from Landline Podcast. Hey Alex, how does the time fly? It seems like just yesterday was the 4th of July, nice sunny morning, and we were sitting on your porch alternating between dark coffees and Bud Light. Saul, the listeners have been cantankering. Is that a verb? Cantankering for your return. No, they've been cantankerous. They've been hankering for your return. Uh, Nationwide, Saul. And and growing cantankerous uh, for not getting it. We're all excited to have you back. Um, It's a cold, dark night in New England, the sort of night rainy wet hard to drive in the the station wagon fogs up when you get into it and you peer through trying to you know squirt your wish washer window washer detergent which doesn't do anything and you're blasting your defrost and it's the kind of time that someone who lives in california actually probably misses a little bit but then it's also the kind of time that people who live in new england wish they lived in california for so um, fifty-eight and rain. Well, it sounds like a good. It sounds like a good night to cook some sort of stew. I did make a chicken and rice soup for lunch. Um, onions, peppers, carrots, all local, of course. A little olive oil, saute, deglaze a little chicken stock in a box. Um, and then I picked the roasted chicken we had last night for dinner. Plopped that in cook the rice separately it's a key key step i've made that mistake many times but if you have a rice cooker you got to cook your rice separately and add it into the soup at the end otherwise you end up having this it sort turns of it gluey it yeah steals all the liquid just stops Exa- it right up exactly and t- makes it just like a rice mush and it's unappetizing to bring to work or school the next day and put in the microwave it just looks like sort of some sort of goulash that you'd eat in the gulag um rice is one of those things you've got to just treat it on its own terms you do it's true 
And th- we have a Japanese rice maker that we got for our a wedding gift from Anna's sister, and it is. Let me guess. It starts with a Z. Mm, I definitely can't pronounce it, and that's a, another thing you and I have in common. Um, Zeroshi or something. Yeah, and then it just makes yeah, su- such a nice, calm sound when it's done. You know, I know those are the best quality ones. I have one myself um, because even my Chinese clients buy these Japanese rice makers. Wow. And they know everything about both, both rice and technology. Now this is such an old trope that is um, been you know done time and time again on the on the stages of bad comedy clubs in New York and in writers' rooms in L.A. since the 1950s. But why is rice supposed to be eaten with chopsticks? Because I was at a dumpling house two nights ago, and I just don't think that joke or that question ever gets old. It's the worst possible utensil to eat rice with. I think it's great. You just have to develop enough agility. Look, to, arguing arguing between the fork and fingers and chopsticks, you know, it's like saying is is English better than French or Spanish or Swedish or any other thing. You know, it's, it's not really about what's best. It's just we do it. We're this far along. We're going to keep doing it. Right. Well, um, so it's a cold, cold, rainy night here, and uh, we had a soup, and we'll probably have some leftovers. Sunday, before Columbus Day, one of those holiday weekends you and I love to chat about traffic patterns for, but you really don't have... Columbus didn't make it to uh, California, did he? Columbus didn't really do the California thing. Uh, He didn't get there... He didn't sail far enough, or he didn't feel like going across the land when he when he did stop sailing. This wasn't his thing. Yeah. So you have a work day tomorrow. Uh, I mean, yeah, but I for me, I work every day, but not not because of Columbus. Well, Saul, I um, I'm excited because I was on the radio this week. It's something I decided maybe I should start trying to do more and more because I can play the clips on the podcast and we can try to integrate this um, young and upstart uh, audio program into the wider media world a little bit. Um, And I'm going to... So to set the stage, I was driving home from Cambridge or Boston. I had gone in to do something of which I now forget. Um... I didn't get a parking ticket, which is probably the high note. And um, one of the local NPR stations, Radio Boston WGBH, um, which is you know a famous Boston NPR uh, station forever, was having its first episode in the new studio in the Boston Public Library. And their first guests were um, two of the gentlemen from This Old House. Now, This Old House is a program I grew up watching in... As a kid in New Hampshire with my parents on Saturday afternoons, Bob Vila is the famous This Old House host who made millions selling Sears tools in the years that followed. And then he was followed up by Steve Thomas. But the two guys who have been on it forever, uh, Norm Abrams and Tom Silva, two general contractors, were on the show taking um, listeners' calls about their old homes and... Um, what with me living in the brown house built in 1698 without insulation with original windows and, you know, lead paint and the whole nine yards, I thought maybe I should call in. 
I'm liking it so far. Okay. All right, now, are you, are you, um, do you know this old house? Of course. You think you're the only New England resident of girls listening to it on weekend afternoons? <laughs> right. Okay. So, I don't know. Well, I don't know. Like, did Jews watch this old house? <laughs> yes. We, we also eat rice with chopsticks. I mean, multiculturalism here. I guess Norm Abrams might be a Jew, so the joke's on me. Um, so, or he's bearded and his last name's Abrams. It sounds like the chances are a possibility. So I called in and the, the phone rang and rang and rang, kind of like how we want it to be when people call in on landline. Once they do. And I, uh, I thought, uh-oh, you know, they're not, never going to take my call. And then a, a spunky young um, female call screener answered and said, public radio. And, you know, you have those thoughts in, in the middle of the day that are so quick and fleeting but are pretty fun to have, including I was like, wow, in my head without even, you know, missing a beat. I thought, wow, what a great way to answer the phone, like to just say public radio. What a landline moment there when you can just answer the phone and give such a broad description of, of who you're calling. So she said, what's your question? And I said, well, I live in this old house and I want to ask them what the best way to keep the heat in is when you're not allowed to make any changes and when you can't insulate the house, et cetera, et cetera. And so I waited for a while and, you know, then they switch your um, your they give you the radio signal through the phone and you turn your radio down because that's a classic moment in talk radio when they ask you to turn your radio down. And they got to the they did a little you know chit chat once the segment started, and then they started to go to calls, and I was the first call up. It was my time to shine. And wow. so, do you want to hear the call, Saul? Let's hear it. Let's have a listen. Okay. Eight seven seven three zero one eighty nine seventy. Let's start in Watertown with Alex. You're on with Norm Abram and Tom Silva from this old house. Hey, Alex. Hey, thanks for taking my call, guys. I grew up watching you in New Hampshire with my parents, so exciting to talk to you. Great. So I'm a business school student now, and my wife and I live in a historic home in Watertown called the Brown House, owned by Historic New England. So the problem is we're not allowed to do anything to the house whatsoever. It's a great place to live because it's funky and it's cheap, but the oil bills in the winter are through the roof. It's crazy. Um, there's obviously storm windows, but you can literally watch the heat escape from the house as an activity in the winter. So my question is, if you guys couldn't do anything to the house, but you were trying to prevent the heat from escaping, other than the plastic hairdryer trick, which is what we did last year and is hideously ugly, what would you do to try to make the house as warm as possible? What, you can't insulate the house? No, I mean, we can't do anything. We're renting, and it's a historic home that is supposed to be preserved in its current condition because it's sort of a museum as well. Well, they actually have this weather stripping that is uh, removable, and it's a caulking that comes in a roll, and you can put it around the perimeter of the windows and seal off those drafts, and at uh, at the end of the season, you can either leave it on or you can peel it off. And uh, put some new stuff on. That will make a huge difference. Anywhere where there's a draft, there is the enemy, and you want to seal it off. Alex, thanks for the call. Good luck with the uh, work there. 877-301-8970. Let's go to... So, that's how the call went. I got on. I thought I, um, I thought I represented myself well. But let's talk about it. What was your analysis of my call? I got to say, I, I, the answer left me with feeling like my 
you know those moments in whether it's in a lecture or you're at a big talk you went to or you're in a classroom or you're meeting a celebrity and you, you come up with a great question and you ask it. Of course, I always think I have the best questions. That's one of the signature parts of my personality. I always think I have the best questions. And then I kind of I felt like the I feel like the answers really just didn't didn't do the job. But what's your take? Uh, to be honest, I found them cuttingly dismissive. I didn't feel like they took you seriously and saying that air is the enemy, uh, although that's true if applied to various fungus or algae who are probably killed by an overabundance of oxygen if they live 20,000 leagues below the sea or something like that. I just don't really see how it applies to your house in a way that you didn't previously understand. Yeah, like I thought we could commiserate about how ugly the plastic on the windows is that you have to cinch up with a hairdryer. And they didn't even, they like breezed right through that. And he just talked about some like roll up products that I guess I should go look for at the hardware store. But, you know, no, like, wow, like how old is the house? Or I know the brown house. It's, you know, on Main Street in Watertown or your house well, isn't insulated. Really That's crazy. With you. They didn't, when you, when you mentioned you lived in not a house, but a historical house, they didn't. They didn't take the bait, let's face it. They didn't snap, snap at the dangling hook. But what I was right to think that I, I represented myself as the well-educated, talkative, outgoing person that I am. Is that correct? Well, obviously, you came across as a chatty, yet crusty New Englander, which is exactly their target demographic. And interestingly, you also came across as... um someone who lives in an old house, which presumably is exactly also their target demographic. <laughs> I just feel like there's so many moments in my life where I come in with such high hopes and I'm let down. And for someone as, I guess, outwardly confident as I, that would seem su like a surprise to most. But just, just, you know, it's exciting to get on the radio. It's exciting to know that other people are listening to you. And then it's exciting to be in the upper quartile, let's say the, the top quartile of question askers. And then to have, I mean, if you listen to the rest of the episode, which I can put a link to, I guess, for our listeners, it's like the all the other questions are way worse. And it's almost like I suffered from being the first because they were afraid that they were going to like not be able to get through everyone. But it ended up that it was sort of the law of diminishing returns. Like they should have spent the five minutes with me instead of, like the old lady in Concord who couldn't get her question out for five minutes. Well, they did a study a few years back of Israeli judges, which showed that they were likelier to sentence people to longer terms if it was right before lunch and they were hungry than right afterwards. And maybe that's sort of the same logic as applies here, that their, their coffee hadn't quite hit them, they were starting on a cold engine, and whatever the reason, they just were not feeling it the way they would have been if you had called in two hours later. Once again, these people who Anna and I are always sort of aspiring to be a new hip version of, whether it's the like home improvement star or, in my case, the um, thrifty Yankee TV chef, I, I, reaching out to people in the Boston area to try to get some action going, and it doesn't really seem like we're starting very many fires. So I don't uh, know I what— I think Boston told you loud and clear that you should move elsewhere. Yeah. All right. Well, that's another podcast because that's certainly one of the topics going on in my family. But um, you had planned on being on doing this podcast, but then there was a 
little blip on the radar this morning. I wondered if you just wanted to share with the group what exactly uh, drove your train off the tracks and how you're recovering. Oh, God, I don't. I don't want to share any of it. It, it wasn't a blip. It was a beer stain, first of all. Uh, and it wasn't this morning. It was from last night. It just sort of carried over. And so, look, I, I, I work... I, I, for a little context, I, I, I work in the fall at a, a ferocious schedule because uh, I'm in my busy season with work. I took on 50% more clients than last year. And I've also been working on a book that I have an editor waiting on that I'm trying to finish up by end of December. So, so basically, I, I wake up and I work and then I go to work and then I come back and then I you know, work for a few more hours. So anyway... I, I was down in Cupertino, and I had meetings all day yesterday, 12-hour day. Then I got back, and my pension is to have a pint or two at a local pub with you know while, while writing for a couple hours afterwards. Number one, because I tend to get back late, and most coffee shops seem to close. And number two, because who doesn't want to unwind with a pint? And I could say all sorts of interesting things about how the same people people, meaning women, who never gave me the time of day when I'd sit at a bar by myself, now constantly flock up to me when I'm with a laptop because I'm not paying attention to the things around me and they think that's interesting. But anyway, I'll go past that. Oh, and there's, so, nothing I, there's nothing I dislike more than someone with a computer at the bar, so it's interesting how they're attracted to it. Do you think that's the Cupertino demo? No, I'm, I'm, not, in, I'm not in Cupertino. I'm oh, right, you're in Berkeley. Space. It's a very different bar. Right. No, I mean, people, they, they like it. I mean, there's nothing I'm less attracted to than, like, 90 people sitting with laptops in Starbucks just working side by side like clones. It disgusts me. So um, I kind of find it refreshing to see the one person, meaning me, who I always think highly about, sitting at a bar by himself with a laptop. But that's redeemed by the reactions of others. Okay, so you're at the bar, you're, you've got the laptop, you're having a pint. What kind of beer are you drinking, just so we can plug some delicious California brew? It was a, it was a local IPA. Delicious. That's, a, that's all we got to say, yeah. So I'm, I'm having a pint, and I have about a third of the pint left in the glass, and someone reaches over to either give or take his credit card from the bartender and manages to knock my remaining pint directly over my laptop. So with predictable consequences for the laptop. And that laptop's brand new, right? I bought it approximately 80 days ago. And you, you don't skimp on the options. I feel like you're getting top-of-the-line gear top-of-the-line gear, and frankly, I, I use my laptop a lot. You know, that, that laptop probably logs 80 hours a week. It's your livelihood. It's kind of amazing how we complain about our internet bills and how much laptops cost, but if you amortize the use versus the price, it's so cheap for its utility compared to all the other stuff in life. Exactly, exactly. I'd say that I've gotten more mileage out of my cat and my laptop per price than, like, anything else I have. <laughs> All right, so the beer spills, what's the first cleanup move? Like you got a dab, you got a, you need a bar towel. That's where my mind goes. There's no napkins there. You need a bar rag. Yeah, so I'll, I'll say 
I will say that the bar, the bartenders there, it's a, it's a good bar and they like me. You know, I, I tip well, I chat, I'm not annoying. And I come in three to four to five days a week, you know, with my laptop. So I'm, so I'm a known presence. So when it happened, there was like a lot of sort of empathy for me. Uh, I had like a bar bag spring up with, you know, with a bar towel, like you said, a bartender, you know, was handing me napkins. Someone else was saying, what do you want to drink next? You know, it's on the house. So there's a there's definitely sympathy for my position. Uh, so I sorry sort of tried to sort of mop you know mop things up a little, but it was a uh, it was a very uh, difficult moment. I, I was not happy about it. I'd been working an insane day, and then I'd been coming home and really just wanted to sit on the couch, but instead I was continuing to work. I was tired, I was hungry, and then suddenly I have this guy, although purely accidentally, due to clumsiness, uh, dunk my laptop in beer. And so how did he feel? Did, what was, how did your relationship with him go from there? Well, that, I mean, that turned into sort of its own saga. Uh, he, he, he said sorry, I'd say one to two times, and then he had been getting his credit card from the bartender as it turned out because he had been, he then sort of left. So he said, sorry, one or two more times. And then I, I was upset. And so I followed him outside and I, I told him that I thought he should have done more than, um, than just sort of like throw out an apology over his shoulder as he was walking away. And what uh, did he, what did he say? We got angry. We, we ended up getting angry at each other there. I mean, he, he, he was, sort of somewhat apologetic and we we ended up getting angry at each other like did he say you shouldn't have had your computer at the bar no god no that's it then i would have gotten super angry no it was nothing like that like he you know he like you know like kind of shook my hand he was like i'm sorry man like i didn't mean to but and then i was just like we we got angry all right well let's go ahead well it just it one of those questions that it raises is this weird awkward thing about etiquette which is that he and we'll talk about the monetary consequences of his action you know in a few minutes but when you do that you know on the one hand obviously it's unintentional and obviously i'm not saying hey you owe me a new computer or something like that but at the same time it's it's not just knocking a you know a beer over on someone's pants or something like that you know there's there's machinery at stake and I, I also admit that I was sitting at the bar with a laptop, which is arguably not the best place to sit if you, you know, if your fundamental concern is safety about your laptop. So it's just this weird, thorny etiquette question of sort of who has to do what and who's supposed to react in which way. I don't know if you have any insight on that. Well, it's a tough situation because, you know, Nobody wants to pay. Uh, like his first reaction is probably, "I'm not going to pay for that." Um, and my and and I'm not going to ask him. You know, right, I, I, right. I, I, well, I what do you want who, though? I don't know where the lines of culpability start and stop, but I'm not. I'm not going to say, especially before I know what the you know the costs are. I'm not. I'm not going to. It's it's not like when someone rear ends you and you can kind of look at them and say, "This is your fault," and 
society has rules that are now going to hold you responsible. Well, let me ask you this without answering a question. Is there a laptop ex- insurance that extends to, to things like this? Um, because- uh, no, they're very smart about specifically saying that any sort of accidental damage or theft is not covered. Right. Because that's a good – that's probably a good – it could be a good business because, you know, the computers themselves – don't cost that much if you're an insurance company collecting $15 a month from a million people. Um, you can buy the, you know, every other week brand new MacBook Pro for people. Uh, I don't yeah, know. No, it's an, we'll, talk about it. we'll talk about these issues. Well, so in college, I used to hang out in, in freshman year dorm, George Washington University, ninth floor of Thurman. Thurston, Thirsty Thurston, nine floor high rise dorm in Foggy Bottom, you know, it was like listed in Playboy three years before I went or something disgusting like that. Co-ed, two elevators, like a big box with just a bunch of 18 year olds in it, you know, worthy of its own podcast um, show. So like it's the Thurston dorm podcast. Lots of stories going out there. The first sex video, um, viral sex video came out of there. A lot of things, you know, like teenage amateur viral sex video that went around to all the colleges on like LimeWire and Instant Message. There's a lot to be talked about. But anyways, I used to hang out in room 924. We were on the ninth floor with my buddies Rupert, Mo- Rup- Rupert, Roper, Moose, and Feldman. And they were always having cocktails, bong rips, and video games. And well, starring I, in your first documentary, right? Um, and the one of the first weeks of school, I dumped over a solo cup on Moose's computer and ruined it. It wouldn't turn on, so we sent it in, and I like took the lead on because this was, you know, this guy is just a barfly who was at your bar. You don't know if he's from Texas or if he lives above the bar. Or, if he never goes to Berkeley because he lives in San Francisco or what was going on with him, I was going to see this guy the rest of the year and potentially the rest of my college career, although I transferred twice. Um, and so we – I took the lead. I took the – because I knew I was going to see him. He was going to be in my universe. I took the lead on getting it fixed. I sent it in, and we played dumb. We said this thing just didn't work anymore, and I just remember so – Right. So I just remember so vividly um, they sent it back and they were like, this is broken and we can't fix it. And I called the 1-800 number from the room with Moose sitting there because I was like, I got to, you know, even then I was willing to do whatever sort of phone calls were necessary to try to get the price down on anything. Yeah. And I was like, oh, my gosh, that's terrible. Like, uh, you know. Oh, I'm so sorry to hear that. It just, yeah, it just didn't work. Like, what? What do you guys think the problem was? And the guy took a pause and he said, "Spillage, sir. Spillage on the keyboard. Spillage on the motherboard. Spillage on the mouse mouse pad. You know, spillage on the circuit board. Whatever." And he was just like, "Spillage, sir." And I was like, "God damn it!" So you had a. Sp- well, it's literally a sp- like those murder convictions where. <laughs> The cops find someone that is standing there with a gun and there's a dead body and there's four bullets from that gun in the body. And he just looks up and he says, I have no idea how this happened. Uh, so I ended up having to pay for it or somebody that 
somebody who was paying me, someone who was giving money, me money, I had to pay for it. All right. Well, we're sorry to hear about Saul. Is that going to affect? I guess the question everyone who's listening is asking themselves is: Is your injured laptop going to affect your online dating? No, I mean for multiple reasons. I mean, yeah, for for so many different reasons. No. Um, anyway, the the conclusion of this story has a somewhat of a happy ending, which is that then I realized that um, thank God I had purchased this laptop on my Amex Platinum card, and one of the benefits is that they do function as insurers of damaged or stolen property up to a 90-day window after you buy it. And I checked my receipt, and I had purchased it, like I said, 80 or 81 days ago. So I immediately filed a claim, and now I'm just going to let American Express deal with it. And I bought a new laptop this morning. And when we were doing some show prep, you mentioned that you're you basically are attributing this uh, positive outcome to you being in the one percent. Yeah, I mean, if if I had been at the bottom of the economy, no way this would have ended happily. But you probably wouldn't have been drinking a nine dollar beer in that case, anyways. So. Yeah, but if I had been, I'm sure that my payday lender would have told me that I owed them a forty percent increase on my. Uh, charges for the money they'd lend me to buy the laptop oh man all right well we all we are all excited to hear how american express fights for you and um the outcome and when the new computer arrives we should chat about it because i do think that there's that few moments when you get a new computer when you're like i really never want to go to a porn site on this computer i'll never take this computer anywhere where a virus could potentially get into it and then there's like certain amount of days depending on your cerebral cortex when you violate that rule well my laptop man 80 80 to 81 days of ownership and sadly that that's it for it but had never visited a pornography site wow it was a it was a work computer wow well that's more discipline than most have yeah well so tell us about the dating you you had a date a couple nights ago we want to hear about it yeah, so I, I, I there, there have been quite a few, but um, but I, I picked I picked one I want to talk about. And by the way, if my voice sounds halting, it's because I'm getting a strange echo in my ear. So I'm basically hearing everything that I say back in my ear. Okay, that's good to know. That is an equipment failure. If you can get through this podcast, I will use the receipt I have for this third piece of equipment I've tried and replace it with a fourth. Okay, perfect. Just so, play this disclaimer every four to five minutes in the recording so that people don't think that I'm stuttering. No, you sound you sound great. I would have never guessed. I'm sorry that it's annoying for you. Um, it's a long... Well, st- you'd sound great, too, if you drank a Bloody Mary, a glass of wine, a dozen oysters, and steak free for lunch. <laughs> Um, all right, so give it to us. Give us the long and hard dating story. So I, I went out um, with this uh, with this girl about yeah pretty recently, and I suggested a place in San Francisco that just opened up in the Tenderloin. Now, for those who don't know San Francisco turf, as it were, uh, the Tenderloin is basically the last remaining really not so nice um, not so nice block. It's it's kind of like a red light district in Amsterdam, but minus all the fun 
and just replace with trash and heroin addicts and grit. It's not a it's not a nice neighborhood, but it's it's kind of beloved in San Francisco for its horribleness. It's not that anyone would want to go there, but it's a piece of the city. Maybe like the old Times Square again, stripped of anything fun. So there's anyway. So obviously in San Francisco, they're running out of expensive places to open bars and restaurants, and so now they're choosing the shitty, gritty ones, and that's where the Tenderloin comes into play. So I picked this supper club called the Black Cat. Mm. Just opened up two months ago. And I it looked great, you know, and it was a lot of fun. So we, we went there. I met this girl there. Um, she was a Jewish lawyer, you know, exactly what I, you know, on paper, all firing on all the right cylinders. And... I realized that, on a side note, it's a kind of genius move to open a really nice supper club in a really shitty neighborhood on a terrible block. Because by the time you walk in the front door, you're so excited to uh, to get into a place that's not outside on the street that you could open a 7-Eleven and people would be flocking and forming a line around the block to get the slushies or whatever. Just by anything becomes nicer or not as nice by virtue of the con- uh, the contrast that it's around. And so this this place, was, it was a good marketing idea. But it's opinion. obviously safe enough that you're not going to get killed. So there's got there's like some sort of like threshold that you have to be inside in order to for that theory to work, right? Well, that's why the Tenderloin is perfect because it's not it's not a dangerous neighborhood. It's just a shitty one. You know, you're you're going to get a lot of people asking you for money. You're going to get weird men and women of various ages experiencing various bowel movements and overdoses. You're going to get, you know, unpleasant architecture, but no one's going to, you know, pull a weapon and say, give me your money. It's not a, it's not a dangerous neighborhood. Roger. Yeah. So by the time, so by any, by the time you walk in here, you're just thinking, God, this place is nice, but it's much nicer given the fact that there's so much that's not nice surrounding it. So we went, we went in, and remember that I was now operating by what we, the rules we established. Can we call them the, like the Marquis of Queensbury rules or some sort of updated version of that? Well, what is that? Can you give us, a, give us an indication? I don't even know what that means. <laughs> well, the Marquis of Queensbury rules are essentially the set of um, constitutional amendments applied to the sport of boxing in the 18th century in England. Uh, whereabouts all the really dirty things that used to be allowed in the sport were banned and it brought some sort of structure and athletic uh, nobility to a previously free-for-all brawl. Mm. So they're, they're, they're famous as, you know, they're famous as being the kind of, they're exactly like the Bill of Rights is for American civics. You know, they're like the foundation of modern-day boxing. Okay. Yeah. So what... So anyway... Uh, Go ahead. No, I was just going to say, so which specific rules do you want to add to the to the uh, in real, what did we call it? Um, offline dating. We had a name for it. We we had such a great name. For yeah, we'll have to get back to each other on that one. In, like, in real life dating. What were the rules you wanted to add? Well, the most important one was that I was going to stop paying for everything. Right. So, unless, unless you were going to ask, you were going to ask the date at the end of the date whether or not you she wanted to go out again, and if she said no, you were going to go Dutch, and if she said yes, you were going to pay for it. 
Exactly. Exactly. But I didn't realize that the Achilles heel of that particular idea, which is a great idea, is that what you're paying for affects what you're ordering. So we we sat down and I, I realized that within within two minutes, I realized this was a very nice girl, very intelligent girl, good career, like, you know, um, like I said, firing on all cylinders, and there's just nothing between us. It was just very clear that uh, we were functioning on different pages. Or that was that was my take on it. And presumably it was hers because she never called me back again. Mm. So, yeah, I, I, I give away the plot. But anyway, but it was one of those things. So it was, we we chatted and we, you know, this supper club had a lot of sort of smaller bites on the menu and then some bigger bites as well. And we, well, I had two cocktails. She had one cocktail. I think I was done with my first cocktail by the time she took a sip of her first cocktail. Uh, we each ordered a couple small bites. But my whole time I was thinking, because I knew in my mind we weren't going to go out again, so I was thinking we're splitting the bill. So therefore, I sort of have to, I can't order more than my fair share, right? Because no one, no one wants to do an itemized bill. You know, it's one thing splitting 50-50. You can't say, I, I had the duck terrine and she had the lobster bisque, but she ordered an extra side of anchovies with the Caesar salad, and I had you know, a $3 more expensive glass of Zinfandel. You can't go down that road, right? Yeah, but if she... Okay, no, you can't. I mean, I don't want to waylay the story because, it, you know, it's exciting, but you, 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 you can't worry about her ability to pay if she's, like, a successful Jewish lawyer in... Not that the Jewish has anything to do with it, but if she's a successful lawyer who you would go out with who lives in San Francisco, then she has a willingness to pay... If this is truly a um, genderless, sexist, sex, no, not sexist. If we're truly looking at all genders the same, then she should be willing to throw the extra 12 bucks towards the anchovies just like you would. Right. But I, but I, felt, I felt badly about that nonetheless. I, I thought it's not, it's not fair for me to get the things that, that my heart craves given that we're splitting the bill given that it would be an excess that would leave me in, in the green and her in the red. Okay. So, so I, I controlled myself. You must have been starving. You must have been starving after the date. That's, just, that's really what this is getting to. I was. I was. I was starving and I was thirsty. I was very thirsty as well. Two cocktails and those, those cute little exclusive champagne coupes or whatever they put them in, they go very fast out. Yeah, very it's like... Fast. Three gulps. Three gulps and you're three sips and you're gone. Yeah, and not not gone in the three sheets to the wind way either, in the bad way. The drink being gone. So anyway, um, we 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 nibbled and we sipped, and a couple hours went past. And I should add that jazz a jazz group was coming in later on. They didn't come till 10 p.m. And so my original idea had been if we hit it off and if there was magic and sparks and all the rest of it, then I'd say, why don't we, why don't we just stick around for a couple of post-dinner cocktails and some jazz? It was a group from New York that was in, supposed to be fantastic. But, but that wasn't happening. There's no way we were making it you know, into a four- or five-hour date. So 
at the end of the dinner, um, we, you know, we, we got up and we left and I walked her outside, but all the while I had this sort of like plan in my head, I'll admit. So anyway, I, I walked her outside, I hugged her good night. I waited until she got into an Uber and because I didn't want her to be suspicious, I actually walked back down the street into this shitty neighborhood away from the suburb club while she got into the Uber. And I didn't stop walking away until I saw the car drive off. And then I walked right back downstairs into the supper club. Yes. Pulled up a chair at a bar, asked the bartender for a cocktail menu and dinner menu. And I took myself out on the date that I wanted to be on. So how little did you, so many questions. How little did you order at the dinner that you were, that you were like, that you needed it? It was small, it was small plate. Oh, the worst. I had a little plate of meatballs, and I had like a couple, you know, a couple other hors d'oeuvre type things, but no, I, I couldn't stick my fangs into anything major. You know what's better than small plates? What big, big plates? Plate, big plates. <laughs> yeah, definitely, <laughs> without a doubt. When I'm going out to dinner, I like a big plate. That's my style. I like multiple big plates. So. Or I like multiple small plates, and then later on multiple big. So plates, I want to know how you knew so fast. How, how did you know so fast that it wasn't going to work? Like, was she attractive? Yeah, that's the thing. She was a very, very, very attractive on paper, you know, in pictures and and in person for that matter. So let's play this game. What wouldn't she have done that you would like to do, or like what would she, like? It's always it's always about imagining people in the situation um you won't be able to like accomplish the goal with them. Like would she have succeeded at a at a dinner party with close friends like Tim and Rachel? Like what 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 wasn't she capable of that turned you off so much? It was a con- that's a great question. It was a it was kind of a conversation thing. Uh I think part of it was that she seemed in a weird way, this, I don't mean this to sound cruel in any way. She she seemed a little ditzy, but she wasn't. She was, you know, she was smart. You could you could tell. Um, but she seemed maybe a little a little ditzy, a little kind of I didn't know the the conversation just didn't flow. Uh, I I felt very early on that it just wasn't. I I I guess my main feeling was I I didn't picture myself saying hey let's let's leave dinner and let's go sit on a beach till dawn under the full moon with the waves lapping around our ankles which is kind of how you want every day to end yeah but you i guess also there wasn't the like she wants to hook up and maybe you know we can just get a little bit of something out of this a little physical release well, I mean, I, I, I don't claim to speak for her or, you know, or say what she was saying. She, she might have been desperate to do that. She might have been desperate to leave. Who, you know, who knows? Like I said, I did not talk to her subsequently. So I think the next... Sorry, go ahead. Yeah. No, go for it. I think the next big big challenge that the podcast, listen, podcast listeners want you to, to, to uh, take on is turning that mediocre date into the two of you picking up other people at the supper club well no because you're because you're you're missing you're missing
missing the crux of the story. Which she wasn't fun which to hang that, out with. Well, no. Which is that it was a great date. But the great part of it didn't start until I sat down back at the bar for round two. Okay, what what did you because have? I, so what did you have? What did you have on round two? What did you have on that date? I had everything out. I had everything. Of course I did. I went through the menu. I ordered exactly what I wanted. I ordered more of the things I'd enjoyed eating. I ordered the larger plates. I ordered the rabbit pot pie. I ordered the, the things that I didn't feel comfortable eating with her sitting there. Uh, I ordered two more martinis. I ordered wine. <laughs> I sat and I listened to the jazz till past midnight. I had a fantastic night. But the fantastic part just didn't start until I felt like I was free to be myself. And why did you call her at all after that? Just because you felt like you, you had enough opportunity cost in that you should see if she answered? Well, no, I didn't. Oh, she, and she never called you either. Right. And you don't, you feel she like... She was leaving for Tokyo for a few weeks, so arguably I could still hear from her, but I, I don't imagine that would be the case. Yikes. All right. But that's okay. But... The, the more important part for, for my mind is that suddenly I found myself without a doubt have, having a lot of fun. I didn't have to make forced conversation. I didn't have to mind, you know, my table manners or wonder how many you know, dishes I was eating. I had interesting people sitting around me at the bar. I was sitting next to one of the musicians until they started up playing. I was talking to the bartender. I didn't have to order my X number martini and wonder if someone was going to be looking at me thinking what the hell's gotten into him. It was a great time. Well, I, you know, I think making yourself happy is at the core of all of these events. So I, it sounds like maybe you're getting closer and closer to the, um, the, God damn it. We got to remember the name of that offline date. The, the, well, just to be clear, dating is not about making yourself happy. That's, that's, that's a joke. That's nothing come on come on no it's not it's it's absolutely not you've you've been up at thirty thousand feet for too long you forget what it's like on the ground yeah well you need to find dating is not dating is not about making yourself happy what is it about just doing what you think you're supposed to no it's a it's it's like when you put a it's like when you take a hundred bucks out of your checkings account and put it in a you know ira or something you know, it's 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 an investment towards the future. It's, but it's not like that hundred dollars that you take out is making you happier than if you spend it on oysters and champagne. Yeah, well, that's you're painting a pretty depressing scene. No, I no, not at all. I'm not, I'm not saying I'm not saying that it's a miserable experience. I'm not saying it's unhappy. I'm just saying that its primary goal is not happiness in the moment. Then nobody would date. Because it's not that fun. Well, you just, you don't know. You know, there's, I've, I've been on fantastic ones. I've been on teeth-pulling ones. This one was somewhere in between, as most of them are. Some are, some are very fun, but some aren't. But you're not, you're not sitting down thinking making myself happy is the primary goal in and of this moment. God, no. God, no. Well, what's on the um, docket? Do you have any irons in the fire? Are you waiting for any callbacks? Are there any, like, do you have to send a witty text? Have you taken any advice we spouted in the last podcast about just not 
not using the phone as much and like did she take her phone out at the dinner was that was that what kind of put the nail in her own coffin and where are we at no, with she was, she was she was good about that she was, she was good about that I've I've irons in the fire. I've been I've been honestly very busy. Right. I've, I've been not doing much because I I have just been working seven seven days a week, um, and seven nights a week. So I wouldn't say that I have. I actually, it's funny. I I looked through my phone the other day because I save the number the names that um that I that are you know online. I save them under the the first name is online, so I can sort of keep all my eggs in one basket, alphabetically speaking. <laughs> yep. And I just saw this list of names that just I had no idea who they were. Most of them that I was supposed to either call or, you know, do something with. But I just, I literally, they were ringing no bells. I know there was just a list of like 10 names in my phone, all named online something. And I didn't know what I was supposed to do with them. Well, if you called all of them in a row on a Saturday afternoon and recorded it, that would be the highest-rated landline podcast of all time. I might just do that. I might I might just call and say, I don't really know you, and you don't really know me. We've probably not gone out. We might have gone out and forgotten about it. Can we talk, or can I delete your number? <laughs> oh, maybe man. I should, maybe I should call them with you on the phone so you could supply the content. I would love to call a girl and ask her out on a date. Just, I mean, knowing that I don't have to go. Just as we as we've spoken about before, that, that was like my favorite part. Yeah, you're right. Well, all right, perfect. Well, speaking of thirty thousand feet, um, if that's what marriage is, I have a little uh, marriage story for you um, to do the flip side of the coin, and then maybe wow. we, maybe we about can just. Time. Do a quick debate prep before we uh, we let we let the listeners go. So, I went up to Central Vermont where I used to live uh, last week to interview a farmer. I'm writing a white paper, Saul. Um, I might need some proofreading help. I'm writing a white paper. Central Vermont, where you used to live. I know you lived in Burlington, but that's northern Vermont. No, I lived in Waitsfield. Did you really? Yeah, right in the heart of the heart of the Green Mountains, near Sugarbush and. Mad River Glen, the ski areas, and the the famous Warren Market, um, and uh, Warren Waitsfield, a bunch of you know Connecticut hippies moved there in the '60s and sort of made it a little bit of a ski colony, party town. So yeah. uh, we lived there for a year when Anna learned to woodwork at Yestermorrow, uh, the woodworking school there, and. Um, I worked at a farm garden, one of the many jobs I've held and many others I haven't held. Um, I managed the, uh, basically a farm stand. I managed a, a boutique farm stand um, directly adjacent to a small organic farm. Husband and wife owned it, um, now since divorced. But he has bought the farm from the people he leased it from and is now growing bunch of csa crops and he's a smart guy and he does well and he's actually now growing a bunch of um herbs that he sends to a national organic herb co-op and they're ground up into um powders that are put in capsules for chinese medicine that you would buy at like whole foods um i've probably bought some of them and i think the price premium on on him is great and he's having a good time doing it um so I went to interview him for this white paper. I'm writing a white paper on the 
um, economic advantages for the uh, institutional investor of organic farmland. So farmland is what they call a very strong asset class because, you know, over time the value of farmland only goes up. There's more and more people and we need more and more food and it's a safe, stable investment. And organic farmland is worth even more, at least the paper I'm going to write um, says such, because uh, it, um, sorry, stumbling a little bit there, because A, organic food costs more, so the prices you're, or excuse me, the prices are higher, so the prices you're getting are a yeah. premium over conventional food. B, um, there's a huge demand for organic food in the United States right now, and a lot of it has to be imported, so there's no trouble getting rid of the food once you grow it um, and see the thing that is sort of fuzzy math but I believe in is that um, basically organic farmland over time is more productive than farmland that has a bunch of fertilizers and pesticides used on it because the soil is so rich and it's constantly being turned over and the crops are constantly being rotated because that's what you need to do to organic farm that there is this very rich, productive, um, high-quality soil that has a greater yield than conventional farming. So sure. I went up to this organic farmer to interview him, and he's like, you can come talk to me. That sounds great, but you might have to pull some weeds or, or do some work in the field while we're talking because I have a really busy day. So I said, fine. I went up there, and he was up there with a couple of people um, harvesting veggies or actually harvesting these roots that he's going to turn into uh, the, the pills I talked about. And actually, someone we went to high school is one of the people that um, was harvesting. And Wait, did we went to high school? Yeah, the, the daughter of our former high school principal who lives in the area and was doing some extra work with him. So we ran into each other. Really? Um, wow. I, I she mentioned podcasts and she men mentioned Mike, but I didn't have the heart to tell her about the podcast. I, I'm a terrible direct marketer for the podcast. So, you are. so anyways, we did a bunch of work. We had a conversation. He poked a ton of holes in the paper I'm trying to write, which is 35 pages long and is going to take a shitload of research. And I'm petrified of finishing on time. And he's already put me back a couple of weeks with some of his um, questions he asked me about why any farmer would take a investment from this specific company, but that's another story. So afterwards, uh, hands covered in mud and blisters, I went to my friends down the road who on the hostel, including Giles from Cocktail Hour with Giles, a great podcast on the Landline Podcast Network that you should find and listen to, um, and went to say hi to Giles in person, have a meeting about the podcast, eat a hamburger because it was burger night at the hostel, have a few beers on the house, and help him move a queen-size mattress into an attic, which is a whole other podcast. But yeah. um, I was washing my hands after going to the bathroom, I don't know, a couple hours into being there and realized that my wedding ring was gone. I had lost my wedding ring pulling roots out of the ground and, you know, chopping them with this uh, rudimentary large knife, like a little mini machete. And I had lost them in a farm field that was mm, 150 yards long. And the row was only probably 10 feet wide, but the ring was gone. And this was after dark, and I had had, you know, a couple beers. 
What were your emotions? Well, my first emotion was, I don't know. I mean, I, my I, my emotions were tempered by the alcohol. Um, tempered or magnified? No, tempered. I was like, well, if I if I'm gonna lose my wedding ring, I guess like the an organic farm field in Vermont is a great place to do it. Ann and I got in. It, this was the first place we lived when we were engaged, and it's just a ring. It's just a thing. It's just a signifier. I can get another one. Um, and effectively, you had planted it. You were sort of seeding the earth. Maybe it'll grow into a gold tree um, if the soil's good enough, and I can put that in the white paper. So um, I just kept on drinking and hanging out because there was nothing I could do. And then I ended up sleeping on the couch at the hostel and waking up around yeah. 5 a.m., an awful taste in my mouth, a awful Ooh. headache in my head, and a pounding heart with the realization that I had, in fact, lost my wedding ring. So yeah, you just dreamed that you lost it. I had lost it. I drove down the road to the farm and thought to myself, <laughs> I'll start looking for it. It was still dark out, um, and I, like, shined the lights from my car from the convenience store that abuts the farm field and tried to look in the dark, and I was like, there's just this, there's no chance. I mean, the size of a ring in a giant field, it's worse than a needle in a haystack. I would have... I was going to say, they, the common saying is needle in a haystack, but a, wed, a wedding ring in an organic food garden is worse. I... A farm, not a garden, a farm. I would have... I would have paid a hundred bucks on the spot to have a well-lit room with a haystack and a needle hidden inside as an alternative. So I, I drove, I was like, screw it. This is, I'll tell him to, I'll, I'll text him and tell him it's lost and he'll find it. And I was driving away and I drove long way under these beautiful stars. It's really dark out and got to the place where I was about to go over the hill to get back to Hanover and I was like about to, you know, get the past the point of no return. I was like, wait a second. I'm about to leave this place without my wedding ring. Um, is this really a good idea? Like I'm not now my wedding ring wasn't expensive. I mean, I, it was, let's say between 500 and a thousand bucks, but I'm not in a hurry to like go buy myself a new wedding ring. It's not something that you like hope to do in year three. Well, aren't they either custom made or I mean, aren't, aren't there sort of specific factors that, make it harder to just go buy a new one well i think if i had been a woman this would have been tragic the fact that i was a man my or i that's that's actually that's maybe sexist no, i don't mean to gender type but i i no, my my wedding ring is if you had been female you would you would not have left the garden to go drinking with giles well, I didn't. That's the thing, though. I didn't know it till after I had left because there was all this dirt on my hands. So all the weight on my hands made it feel like everything was normal. I mean, you notice when you're not wearing your wedding ring unless your hands are caked in dirt. I'll take your word for it. So listen, <laughs> listen, I it's 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 just a sized gold band. It's not that fancy. Uh, it's nothing, but it was the thing that my wife put on my finger when she said that she would pledge her everlasting love to me forever. So I remember watching that happen. So, um, I got to that moment of, of no return and I was like, you know what? I, this is, I got to try harder. And I turned around and I went back to the convenience store 
and I bought a sausage, egg, and cheese full of commodity ingredients, and I bought a cinnamon bun, and I bought a coffee, and I bought a Gatorade, and I sat in my car listening to, uh, you know, the uh, BBC News Hour on NPR, and I jammed home as much salt and sugar and fat as I could, as fast as I could, and caffeine, and waited for it to get light and went out in the field and looked for 40 minutes and told myself this is fucked. So didn't end with you suddenly finding. I'm going to go back with a metal detector. <laughs> it would be funny if you found other wedding rings there. Maybe 10 different husbands have lost them in the organic field. Well, any wedding ring I find, I'm declaring to be mine, and I will fit to, I will size to fit my finger. I mean, that's that's what's going to happen. But um, I'm going to go back. Now, when you started this story, I thought it had a happy. No, I don't have a wedding ring on, and it caused me and my wife to have a gigantic fight today. I mean, the fight was about something completely different, but that was the catalyst. What was the original fight about? Well, the original fight was about the ring, but then the the real fight was about how. I was not putting enough time into my schoolwork and it was costing us a ton of money. So I can't get into that now. Um, we'll, we'll talk about that in the, in the after party. So the as a future episode theme, I'm going to go up to um, Waitsfield, Vermont, and I'm going to look for that effing ring with a metal detector. And I'm going to tell the story on the landline podcast. I wish that I could go there and with you and help you find it. I think that would be a fun day. Well, there's a uh, Economy Plus um, seat waiting for you. All you have to do is get on kayak. You love buying things. You love mediocre first class. You love traveling. I think there you can fly San Francisco, JFK, Burlington. I'll pick you up. We can go down there, get a six-pack of good Vermont beer, and, and find that wedding ring. Maybe even podcast right out in the garden. That's right. We can uh, get the mic set up and and make it happen. And we could go get a beer at Giles and do a cocktail hour with Giles, a menage a pod. I never really forgave Giles for not inviting me to Montreal (laughs) on the podcast. Well, I had a great time with Giles. Giles and I are going to pod soon. Giles wrote a novel um, that he drunkenly asked me to uh, proofread for him, and I'm going to, and I'm not trying to like hang him out to dry. I think it's great he wrote a novel, and you know what that's like, and I think it's nice that he asked me to read it. You're a tough critic. You better watch it. So the only thing I want to uh, finish off with here, Saul, is the debate. It's uh, Sunday night, April, April, October 9th. I did not watch any of the last debate. It is not my duty as an American citizen to sit there and watch these two buffoons talk for 90 minutes. It's just not part of... Well, 85 million people disagree with you. I know. Well, that's fine. And you know I love to be a contrarian. I mean, that's why this is the Landline Podcast. But it is the grab the pussy moment of 2016. So can you just give me, there's so much to talk about. Don't spin off in a million different directions. When you first read the news about grabbing them by the pussy, what did you tell yourself? What did you think? What did you want to do? I don't you, you You want my real reaction? You yeah. You want my real no-holds-back reaction? 
Or do you want do you want some sort of like pleasant green room spin? No, I want the, we want your real reaction. Okay, I I thought everyone making a a fuss was or an absolute either idiots and hypocrites or or both, and I'm going to tell you why. Um, finding out that Donald Trump said something horribly offensive about women over a decade ago is the least surprising thing I've ever heard about because he said horribly offensive things about women three decades ago and three days ago and three weeks ago and pretty much at all other times in his public life. So to me, I, I, I thought this idea that suddenly in the public's eye, this had, this had changed Donald Trump. It was simply, it was untrue. Uh, this was one one very offensive thing in a long list of very offensive things. But for people to, to react the way they have, you know, for, for these Republican politicians and, you know, party bigwigs and, you know, pundits and everything like that, to be suddenly saying, We've, we've supported him when he's made fun of mentally challenged people. We've supported him where he's called women every other name in the book. We've supported him when he's done all these different horrible things. We've supported him when he is, you know, refusing to show tax returns or do things that are in keeping with presidential tradition for the last, you know, 50 plus years. And for them to suddenly say that this one recording of him on a bus 11 years ago revealed him to be some whole other person, it's a deeply uh, hypocritical thing to say, in my opinion. Um, Trump is exactly the same person before that recording and afterwards came out, and it's not, to me, revealing in any way. Very, very well said, uh, and incredibly well thought out, and and super interesting. Um, Now, do you, are you, this is going to sound like such a little fart in the wind compared to what you just said, but are you saying that the people, like the Republicans, who who took away their endorsement? Yeah, I mean mean that, but I, I also mean the media, I also mean every, every, Everyone who's who's freaking out, you know, but I, I do mean especially these politicians who say we have daughters, you know, we, we cannot condone this because we have wives and we have daughters and this is some totally different thing. Uh, this is Donald Trump saying insulting things about women and he's done a lot of it and this is not anything, you know, that, that turns his character into something it's not. That's did this particular sentence, the one you quoted, happen to be especially damning? Yes. Does it happen to be almost sort of cartoonishly offensive? You know, absolutely. Does it suggest strongly some sort of sexual assault? Yes, it does. But, again, these are all sort of qualities in keeping with, with this person. Um, he didn't suddenly reveal himself to be uh, misogynist. He had said a lot of things that would contribute to that, and this is one of them. So, I think I think whether people are using this as an excuse or anything else, I, I think it's hypocrisy to say suddenly uh, we didn't think Donald Trump was like this until we heard this reporting. It's so funny how people have to see or hear the full picture rather than just deduce what the full picture is from some of the like it's like um 
what is it, Easter Island, where they didn't know forever that the bodies were underneath the land. They just thought they were heads. So it's it's such an interesting thing. Like I I am the stereotyper. I am the projector. I am the one who just can decide what something is what what's going on with with just a tiny taste of of the facts, and I decide the entire story without having to hear everything out. Now that might be to my detriment, but who ever thought that Trump was a was going to be a good person to run for president or to be president? Like you could watch ten minutes of The Apprentice and th- and figure that out. It's well, like that's, that's, that's what I. That's, that's what you were saying. I'm I now mean. agreeing with you. I'm now bringing my own spin on it because yeah. it's like how three years ago on this podcast I said the NFL is a bag of dicks. They're hypocrites. All they're in for is money. This is like all commercialism. The food on the commercials is disgusting. The beer on the commercials is disgusting. It's a bunch of poor black kids who are being preyed on by rich white people to play this game that's going to kill them before they could have lived their whole life for the sake of the glitz and glamour of the media. And now all of a sudden everyone's talking about, oh, the ratings are down on the NFL and uh, concussions. Is it concussions? Is it a bad product? Is it, you know, and I said three years ago, well, there's not enough good kids playing football anymore to make the game that good. They're changing the rules because they're trying to keep it. That's just one example. I'm not right about everything, but why do we need – can't people figure out that this guy is a complete idiot from three well, – let me, Exactly. Let me, let, me, let me give you a counterexample. You know, a few – well, this more than a few years ago, probably closer, my God, to 10 years ago. Uh, look, at, look at someone like another New Yorker. Look at Elliot Spitzer. Uh, he, you know, he was, for those who forget, he was, he was, made, he was made famous um, – and his sort of law enforcement capacities for putting away, um, you know, uh, bankers, you know, mob, you know, whatever. He, he went after corruption. He chased it down. And his whole image, and, and I remember in 2005 when we lived in New York, and he'd come into our restaurant, my restaurant that I worked at, uh, and he was beloved. He was this beloved figure. He was this kind of pretty boy celebrity, you know, anti-crime, anti-corruption figure. People were talking about him as certainly presidential material down the road, you know, four or eight years or whatever it is. And then you had this huge scandal break where it turned out that he'd been, you know, visiting high-priced escort services in D.C. or wherever it was. Alexa Dupree. Yes, (laughs) exactly. And um, it turned into this, it it turned into this career-ending scandal because, because I think in part, not just because this was a you know married man visiting prostitutes, which is obviously its own set of difficulties if you're trying to become president or a politician, but fundamentally because his image was built on being this squeaky clean person who was devoted to stamping out crime wherever he could find it. And it was revealed that this squeaky clean Boy Scout politician deep down was in some ways as dirty as the rest of us he's a liar he was a philanderer you know whatever words you want to use i don't care but the point is that that is a scandal that logically takes someone down but the trump thing is completely different because again this is this is someone the only thing i thought when i heard when i heard this these quotes was i thought 
course Trump said that. He says things like that, if not that extreme, on a daily basis, tweeting them, saying them, you know, uh, recording, surfacing. So, again, why, why are we surprised the way we were when Elliot Spitzer's true colors were revealed? It's a totally different thing. And not, oh God, there's like so many different directions to go. The thing that's so stupid about about the Trump story to me is, of all the things, of all, okay, let's let's go in all the different directions. Number one, if you think you shouldn't vote for him because he says grab girls by the pussy, you're wrong. The reason you shouldn't vote for him is because he's with a national television host on a bus, and I didn't even watch the clip. 15 minutes before they're about to shoot a scene and this guy has contacts all over the country and it has a national forum for sharing information and you say that to him is that the kind of judgment you want in someone who has to make policy decisions for the united states so that's the problem he has no judgment he has he has absolutely no judgment on what to say on how to make decisions he was wearing he was wearing a microphone when he was talking right exactly like hey like you can be, yeah, you can be the biggest dirtbag in the world, but if they put a microphone on you, like check in with what the next two hours of your life are going to be like. The other thing that is completely counter uh, or a different topic than that that is also not in support of Trump. So don't in, don't interpret it incorrectly. Don't we want to live in a world where people can say grotesque things? in the privacy of their own home. And maybe and maybe this country still believes that, but they just don't want that person to be president. Like that's fine. Like Mitt Romney has never said grab anybody by the pussy. And I don't think a Barack Obama has said grab her by the pussy or anything like that. But like don't human beings still want to be able to tell dirty stories behind the scenes? Like I just want to make sure I'm standing up for dirty stories. I'm standing up for conversations and confidence, and I'm standing up for going too far. Not if you're Trump. Not if you're running for president. Not if you are. No, I agree with you. I just I I worry about I I guess the landline core of my soul worries about recording devices, cameras, Twitter, all of this bullshit. Do we want people to just constantly be? censoring themselves now the whole thing about like i'm rich and powerful and all of that bullshit i mean the guy is a maniac but also who builds a, an 80 an 80 story gold building in the middle of manhattan and then tells everyone that it's 90 stories like there's only six human beings on earth who are so egotistical that they would build the trump tower on fifth avenue and there was a story there was a big long form piece on Frontline on PBS last week comparing Hillary and Trump telling their historiography over the course of the 60s, 70s, 80s. And when he, that building came out, he told everyone in the press that it was 10 stories higher than it was because he felt that that was important for the image of the building. And people wrote about it that way for a long time. So oh, yeah, he's, there he's isn't also a it, genius there, when it comes to marketing. There isn't like there isn't a fraternity of men around the country in the dark alleys of every town and city who like love the grab by the pussy club. There's only 
six men on earth who would say I grab them by the pussy to a reporter when they have a microphone on. And those are the six men you do not want in charge of a democracy, at least. Yeah. I mean, again, there's there's a lot of talk that he uh, said much worse on many different uh, shows and microphones and cameras, including The Apprentice, and it's just that we don't get to watch all of that. But, this, you know, this is someone who didn't really give a damn about saying what he felt like saying whenever he wanted to say it. And, and he says it to get attention and to be in charge. Uh, yeah, I think people would differ on his motives i think a lot of people said it because they think he's some combination of a sociopath and or uh uh you know molester or assaulter of women but certainly he says a lot to be provocative i think but i think what you were saying earlier which i agree with and maybe you were saying it in different words and maybe this isn't what you're saying my point of view is the reason Donald Trump shouldn't be president isn't because he's a misogynist. It's because he's a fucking idiot. That's why we shouldn't elect Trump president. There have been plenty of misogynists who have been president of the United States and have probably been pretty successful presidents of the United States, including John Kennedy, Mr. and Mrs. Liberal. So let's just like pump the brakes, as they say. Um, such a sure. cliche on. Oh, now I, I agree with you, Saul. I agree with you. I don't think that the John McCain's of the world should have ever endorsed this asshole. I don't think Paul Ryan should have endorsed this asshole. I think there I I have respect for people whose political views I disagree with who go to work every day like trying to in their eyes make the country a better place, but the Republican Party completely sacrificed its soul over the last 6 months. They should be fucking embarrassed about their behavior. And this is just the it's not even the icing on the cake because I think the icing will still come like I think the icing and the cherry are yet to come we got two more debates that I'm not going to watch and I mean what's he going to do is he going to like shoot a gun so into why the air to watch them I'm curious why don't I watch them yeah one's on in one and one's on in 56 minutes from now um I they're not a debate Nobody, I, 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 they're so badly organized. Nobody ever answers the questions. I hate Hillary Clinton, and I'm going to vote for her. So it's like this horrible, just like 90 minutes of thinking about how I don't want to do that. Um, and it's like the worst representation of American identity in 2016 that I can think of. I think it's highly depressive. It depresses me. That a country full of, you know, everyone's like, oh, this country's going to hell in a handbasket and it's all different. Like, you know what? Fuck that. There's so many innovative people out there. There's so many creative people out there. You know, our generation is taking like the environmental problems on, you know, with with um, with great uh, grandeur and excitement and um, creativity and enthusiasm for something that's completely fucked because the last 250 years of, of human, you know, uh, species has has been just pumping, you know, coal and oil into the atmosphere. And yet we think there's a chance that we'll save it. You know, there's there's great music. There's great art. There's great food. Uh, there's great writing. Um 
in this country. There's great community still. Um, there's great coffee, you know, that we're getting from other places. So I just I, I, I don't believe I, I can't. It's so depressing to me. I don't want these are not this. These are not people that are representative of my, my America. These are representative of two political parties. And the political parties are full of people who think that they're helping a greater good, but are actually just living in this weird white collar sort of fraternity. Sorry to, you know, keep saying that of, you know, it's a very established, predetermined structure for them to run their lives and understand order. And it's just it's awful. You know, I don't really respect precinct captains in Iowa anymore or New Hampshire. I don't really respect people who are like, you know, seasoned veteran campaigners who are constantly working for whoever the next person is like these people aren't offering a solution. You know, what about the fucking million people in Syria who are just like they'd rather drown in the Mediterranean Ocean than live in their country because of how awful it is and. I don't know. I mean, whatever. I we, we can't spin off into the into the big black hole, but I I don't think it's my obligation as American citizen to watch this and then tweet about it and then listen to the radio about it and then talk about it at work. I think if everyone did if 86 million American 86 million Americans did something tonight to make this country better instead of watching TV like the fat fucking assholes that they are then this pla- this country would be a better place. I don't think that this is helping the nation by watching the debate. Quite a point of view. But I, I, I respect that people watch the train wreck, I guess, but I just, it makes me uncomfortable. I don't want to, like, I don't, I physically don't want to watch it. It's like watching a movie where it's, you're stuck in a house for 90 minutes. I just don't want to be there. I'd rather watch mediocre football where people are dying of concussions, honestly, or podcast with you. If, look, if, if you want to hold a special uh, sort of rival promotion to the debate and podcast right through it and see how many of those hundred million we can peel off into our podcast, I'm open for it. Why do you watch? Why do I watch it? Well, yeah. two two reasons. Num- number one, I think it's important to know something about uh, politics because I think there's different directions we can we can take this country, and even if we don't have a lot of say over it as individuals, we have some. And so I've watched every set of debates going back you know, at least to the year 2000, just because I, you know, feel that I should be watching them. I watched the VP debates. I watched the presidential debates. I watched the primary debates um, to try to learn what I can about the people who are going to be running our country, potentially. Um, I also freely admit that with this particular set of debates and with this particular candidate, or as he pronounces it, candidate, uh, there's definitely, like you said, the train wreck factor uh, in the sense that you really don't know what's going to happen. Look, I've talked to people in their 70s and their 80s, people who have, you know, studied politics for, as, you know, careers, they said there's never been a year like this, certainly in their living history and arguably in some ways in the country's history going back pretty far. And so for me, um, it's, a, it's a time when I, when I try to be paying attention to it because it's hopefully not going to happen again. But this, this sort of thing is, uh, 
you know, it's, it's interesting in a historical sense. I, I think if I'm around 50 years from now, I'll probably be telling someone who listened, uh, hey, this was a crazy time, the whole Trump-Clinton October surprise meltdown of, uh, of good old 16. Well, I, I totally respect all the reasons you're watching, and I kind of wish I had the same enthusiasm for the process that you did, even in these types of situations. And I guess I'm a little disappointed that I've gone from someone who dropped out of college to work for Howard Dean full-time when he ran. <laughs> that is ironic. I was going to, to mention that. To someone who is so like distasteful. But, you know, Howard Dean wrote an op-ed in the newspaper today, I think, in the New York Times about how the two-party system is screwing America and that's really more how I feel than um, feeling like this is a good solution. What I will say, Howard Dean, Howard Dean also accused Trump of being on cocaine, and I don't see what good that did for really anybody. That was that was the worst thing. That was like the worst outbreak that Howard Dean's ever or out, whatever you call it. Um, you know, yeah. What do you what do you yeah. call it when someone acts outburst. out? Outburst. That was the worst outburst he's ever had. That was a very off-brand thing for Howard Dean. I mean, no, everyone thinks Howard Dean's crazy to scream, and I can do a whole podcast. I did do a whole podcast on that um, with David Temple. You guys should look it up in the uh, archives. But uh, Howard Dean's a normal guy, and you can disagree with his ideas, but he's very down-to-earth and has done a lot of thinking about the way he feels and I think you know, has worked hard for what he thinks is the right thing, and that was so weird for him to do. Um so, so yeah, I don't know. Um, you know, Oh, this is what I was going to say. So I think what's interesting too. So people ask me like, how's business school? And you know, what are you learning? And I'm learning so much. And I think sometimes I'm learning more than I can even really say, um, because it hasn't really all set in, but the idea of opportunity costs and truly understanding what opportunity costs means is something that I think is one of the greatest lessons I've learned since since starting school and you'd think people should be able to learn that you know just in life but I think really understanding what it means and it, it really means that like time is just as valuable as money it's what it's not just yeah. should we introduce this new Snickers product because we can sell it it's what else could we be doing with the time and money that it's going to take us to develop the product and source the chocolate and source the almonds and find the packaging and do the graphic design and change the assembly line and, you know, make this stuff and ship it and teach everyone how to sell it, the salespeople and get the boxes and all that stuff. Go to the convenience stores, see how it's going, restock it. What else could you accomplish in that amount of time? And would the other thing yield you more profit or you know more equity in your long-term um in your long-term establishment or your long-term goal or entity or whatever so for me getting what i decided in one of the podcasts we did months ago in not not being involved in this election is i have saved myself so much emotional time and energy not paying attention because i decided that i was going to vote for hillary clinton once i got you know, two full whiffs of Trump and everyone else should have decided that. And that gets back to your point. Who was voting for Trump six months ago, let alone now? Not because he's a Republican, not because of this and that. It's because he's a fucking idiot and you do not want him in the White House making decisions that could affect you, especially military ones. 
So I decided to take all that opportunity cost and put it into other uh, projects. You know, the podcast, cooking good food, keeping the house clean occasionally, um, meeting people at school, exercising, um, traveling, you know, spending time with my wife, watching football on TV, anything but this. Because if you get caught into the political podcast, political website, political news articles, political debate, television shows, it's a fuckload of time. And if you get paid any amount of money, then you should multiply the amount of time you spend on this political political election, the political election, on this election by the amount of money you make and wonder what else could you have accomplished with that value that you forfeited by paying attention to this election. Because, you know, I might as well just mail in my ballot now. There's nothing that can change my mind. I'm voting for the female Dick Cheney to be the next president because she's a better alternative than what this idiotic Republican Party came up with. Yeah, but by that logic, what I mean, let's go back a a year ago when we were talking about the 16-person field in the Republican primaries. Is there anyone who you would have voted for? Well, I will say this. Hillary's ripe for the picking. So. <laughs> Good enough. I, you know, um, if Mitt Romney was running against Hillary Clinton right now, I would vote for him. Interesting. I just, I don't think that you can be caught lying about lying so many times and be trusted. And I know that she is she's an incredibly hard worker. She understands Washington. She probably will make good decisions in the Oval Office. She, you know, is fundamentally aligned with a lot of my beliefs politically. But I just think at some point you lose your chance to tell the truth. And I feel like she lost that chance. All right. So I think that's it. Wait, what did you just say? She's got your vote and you hate yourself for it. I like it. Don't you think that 100 million Americans feel that way right now? I think there's a pretty big chunk that do, absolutely. And she might be fine as president. I like That's the other thing. How much does this really affect us? It affects us on big issues. But, you know, when Clinton becomes president, which will happen... You are still going to, you know, wish that you could get better dates at the jazz club and eat all the food you want. And and, and I'm going to still wish that I can find the, a way to make this podcast and my cooking and and my opinions into some sort of super successful entity that influences people. And I'm not sure any president really has an impact on that. So, well, sure. I mean, when I was when I watched Obama uh, on inauguration day, which to me was actually, a you know, I. I liked seeing it, and I was watching it on TV in my long-term residence hotel in San Francisco, uh, where I was unemployed, heavily into student debt, with no prospects whatsoever, thinking, hopefully this, uh, this rubs off on me, which it didn't. Okay, well, with that... We are going to thank our listeners so much for listening to the Landline Podcast, Saul versus Alex, Alex versus Saul. Saul, can we pin you to once a week Monday releases? The the fans are clamoring, clamoring. 
Yeah, of course, of course, I'd be delighted to comply. We just want you. We want to hear from you on a weekly basis, listeners. We apologize for the, uh, you know, all over the place releases. We're trying to dial this baby in. We have opportunity. Let's quick, co- let's quick plug plug two for for my book recommendation of the week, which I've decided to start. Um, this Great. week, I'd like to throw out the name Rogue Heroes: The Secret History of the British Secret Forces Post World War II by Ben McIntyre. Uh, it's got a big plug on the back from my favorite historian of all time, Anthony Beaver, and it's a uh, colorful and body and gripping history about a great cast of characters who emerged from the debris of World War II to form one of the most respected special forces units in the uh, world. Anyway, just a great read for those who, like me, enjoy British military history between the periods of 45 and 65. And what's the title again? The title is Rogue Heroes and by it's... Ben McIntyre. Okay, Not awesome. Saul, we might yeah. need to do a book club here on the podcast. Oh, yeah, we're going to. Um, and uh, another plug, listen to our other shows. We have um, some great sports episodes. I know not everyone loves the sports, but there's some funny stories coming out of there. Our most famous podcast guest, Gabe Spitzer's new 30 for 30 documentary on John Daly is coming out soon. ESPN Films is getting a ton of press about that. Uh, over 100,000 people have watched it online, the trailer. So um, we will be podcasting with Gabe as he gets more and more famous in Los Angeles. And we will be his inside story um, where we can disrespect him just like the old days on Landline. Best thing you can do for the show is tell a friend. Tell somebody to listen. We have a really solid group of people listening to this show every time it comes out. We all need you to get one more person to listen. We have a lot of great things to say on the show. We believe in it. We're going to dial it in and make it a thing. We're making it a thing, so I should stop saying that. Um, It's a thing. It's a thing. thing. And uh, thanks for listening. Saul, thank you so much for coming, and we'll talk to you soon. Hopefully next episode we're going to talk about cell phones because we didn't get into them too often. But there's two great articles. One in New York Magazine by Andrew Sullivan, the prolific blogger who was at The Atlantic and The Nation and uh, The Daily Beast. And then his own website, The Dish, um, about his addiction to his own cell phone. It's called Put Down Your Phone. It's the cover story of New York Magazine two weeks ago. You guys should look it up. And Saul, quickly plug that uh, Cell Phones Friends article from the New York Times. No, we'll, we'll get into it next week. All right, well, there's a cell phone. If Google Cell Phone Friends New York Times, it'll come up. Saul and I will both be discussing those articles next episode. So, I'm Saul, have fun. I'm monogamous in my plugs. I, I only plug one thing <laughs> Okay, well, thanks for the pod. Enjoy the debate, and uh, we will talk soon. Sounds good. Talk to you soon. All right, adios. Landline is hosted, written, and produced by Alex McKay. The best thing you can do to support the show is tell a friend. Find other episodes of Landline on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and talkforaliving.com. Call the Landline at 617-744-1895. Music by the Pitchfork Revolution out of Bend, Oregon. taking this show to the top, baby. You're listening to Landline.